Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Mohammad Zishan about his new book, Flying Blind, India's Quest for Global Leadership, which was published by Penguin Random House India and Vintage Books in 2021. Mohammad Zishan is a journalist, columnist, and foreign policy commentator. He regularly writes for The Diplomat and The Deccan Herald, and he is the founding partner and editor-in-chief of Freedom Gazette, an independent media platform. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Zishan. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become interested in strategic affairs and Indian foreign policy? Yeah, that's a good question. Nobody has really asked me this, <laughs> even though I, I think I might have written a little bit about it in my, uh, you know, in the acknowledgement section of my book. I was not born in India. I was born abroad uh, in Indonesia, actually. I was born in, as, as an Indian citizen in Indonesia uh, to Indian parents. Uh, and so I spent a significant part of my childhood abroad before coming back to India when I was about eight, uh, seven or eight years of age. Um, so I think in some sense, you know, having my childhood and upbringing abroad probably uh, you know, kind of kindled that interest in, in international affairs. Wherever I went uh, as, as a kid, I was a foreigner. You know, people would ask, where are you from? And I would say I'm from India. Even though at that point in time, I hardly visited India. You know, we were, we were mostly uh, cooped up in, in, in Jakarta. Uh, But uh, the Indian identity was an essential part of who I was uh, as a kid. And then, of course, even after coming back to India, my family used to travel abroad fairly frequently. My father used to work in the Middle East. So I was in and out during the summer vacation, uh, saw a fair bit of the Middle East. And, um, you know, when when I uh, finished my uh, undergraduate studies in engineering. I, I left for the United States to study at Columbia, do a master's degree in international affairs. Uh, spent a couple of years in the U.S. Spent a little bit of time in the U.N. Uh, then you know moved to the Middle East and worked there for a bit as as a policy consultant. So I've kind of been all over the place and 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 spent a lot of my early part of my life uh, around the world. And and it got me thinking a lot about what India really means to the rest of the world and what the rest of the world means to India. I was very interested uh, from a very young age about India's place in the world. Uh, I was very interested in trying to figure out why Americans or really Western citizens are, are treated very differently from Indian citizens and other citizens in, in many parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East, for that matter, as I write in my book. Uh, a Western passport holder would sometimes be paid more money for the same kind of job as compared to an Indian citizen or a, or a South Asian uh, citizen. So that, I think, was was very telling to me. I, I wanted to understand why uh, this was the case and, and, and what India's place in the world was, uh, how India can, in some sense, make life for its diaspora better and how Indian foreign policy can uh, you know, in some sense, make life better for for Indians here at home in a very globalized economy, uh, and and then you know one thing led to the other, and I started essentially writing for various publications around the world, and I've now been doing that for a few years. 
thank you for sharing that. Uh, and thank you for sharing uh, your unique journey to becoming uh, a foreign policy commentator and journalist. Um, uh, and then I, I think you are very uniquely placed, a uniquely positioned to um, write this book. So I'm very glad that you wrote this book. So th- your book makes a passionate case for Indians to be more engaged with the world and for India to be more active in world affairs. Um, and I think you've already started answering uh, what was going to be this my next question. But I'm um, sort of uh, building on that. Um, how do you come to write this book specifically? And what do you see um, as its major arguments and contributions? Well, you see, I mean, I start I started conceiving this book when I was at Columbia, uh, and uh, I think that the the, the real um, sort of impetus for it was that I was surrounded in in Colombia by people from all over the world, and you know we used to discuss obviously uh, political affairs and and developmental affairs uh, that um, you know were pertinent to those countries. I, I remember watching, for instance. Uh, when the FARC peace deal in Colombia was was happening, and you know there was a referendum that took place in in, in Colombia in 2016, I was in New York at the time, and I was actually sitting and watching that news together with a with a classmate of mine who came from Colombia, and I think it, it, it's possible that I'd never have followed that news story if if that guy was not near me, and you know we were not friends and we were talking about it. So I started getting more immersed in in a lot of these things. And, you know, I I was very interested in what role India can play in in international affairs and and global affairs, because I've always been very frustrated, as as I've put it in my book as well, by what I see as India's lack of global influence. Our passport is not ranked contrary to popular perception and, and what the prime minister and home minister and others might say. The Indian passport is not ranked very highly, you know, in uh, on the international uh, indices. Uh, in fact, in, on the latest passport index uh, published by Henley and Partners, um, you know, India is ranked below Mongolia, which is which is not a country that you would in any way see as a, as a regional power in a, in any part of the world. So it it's it really begs the question of why Indians are not able to un, you know enjoy. The sort of rights uh, and 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 status abroad that a country which is the you know one of the world's largest military powers, India is is the third largest military power in the world, a country that is a nuclear weapon state, a country that has a large chunk of the global youth population, a country that has a large chunk of the global consumer market. Why is it that such a country is not able to rub its shoulders? At the highest level, and enjoy the sort of influence that that other countries of its you know size would would enjoy. So that was the key critical question that I wanted to answer in my book. And you know, obviously, I go into depth and detail on this. One of the things that I that I talk about is the concept of fence sitting, uh, and I argue against fence sitting. I say that when you sit on the fence, it has repercussions for your influence. It actually makes your country less relevant in in global affairs, uh, and I think that's very, very, uh, very much the case with uh, with India at the moment. So I, I talk at length about how fence sitting is hurting India's influence, India's credibility. How can India build its influence and credibility on the world stage? What does it really mean to enjoy influence? Why does it matter to Indian citizens at home and abroad? These are some of the key critical questions, uh, you know, that that I seek to answer. Uh, and and I argue along the lines of uh, 
trying to establish for India a more coherent foreign policy vision that would actually do all of these things. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, I mean, as you mentioned that the Indian passport is not very, you know, powerful. I mean, that sort of explains why there's this big rush of Indians who try to immigrate abroad and try to, you know, gain Western passports. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, and also like, you know, the fact that despite India sort of being um, such, as you mentioned, like such a big military power and sort of this lar- relatively large economy, it's still sort of punches below its weight in world affairs. Um, um, so, I'm, so, yeah, I mean, um, I, I definitely see uh, the contribution of your book um, in terms of thinking about that. Um, so another observation that I had was that um, your book is very engaging and accessible for a wide audience of academics, but also non-academics. Um, so could you tell us what you're trying to convey through this title, like Flying Blind? And can you also just tell us a little bit about how you researched for the book and wrote and sort of structured the book and wrote the book? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, uh, you know, to be honest, Shatrunja, it was easier to write the book itself than to come up with a title for it. Uh, and and that's, that's oftentimes the case, even as a, as a columnist and editor, I would say that it's easier to actually write out my 800,000 word article than it is to come up with a proper headline for it. Uh, and it was much harder in this case, because, you know, I'm trying to kind of uh, convey something through the title that would summarize the basic idea of the book. Uh, and in this case, you know, many people often look at this title and they say, oh, he's trying to cock a snook at the establishment. Uh, he's he's kind of, in some sense, putting down the government or whatever. No, that's actually not what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I'm certainly not trying to put down India. In fact, in many ways, the concept of flying blind, I say oftentimes that India is such a large country and so consequential a country as a result of its size and geography and all of these other things that even if it is blind, it can only fly, it can't crawl. The problem is that India, despite its size and, and, and its potential for you know exercising and enjoying influence on the world stage, tends not to have a coherent direction in its foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, we are not able to cultivate allies around the world. We're not able to cultivate constituencies of support who would stand up for our interests uh, on the world stage uh, or, or in specific countries around the world, whether it's in the neighborhood or, or outside. And so what I'm arguing is that we've got to give it a, a certain coherent direction. We tend to sit on the fence on, on most que- uh, issues. Many people would say not having a policy is also a policy. I would say, yeah, that is okay if you're you know, Sri Lanka or the Maldives or Mauritius or a small country like that. India mm-hmm. is not in its position. It's not in a position to be able to sit on the fence. Uh, and and still be a, a credible emerging power, because when you sit on the fence, uh, you know what what happens is I as I argue in my book is that you're not able to build trust with either of the parties, uh, you know that are engaged in the dispute, uh, and you're certainly not able to contribute anything meaningful uh, to that dispute as 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 a result of uh, sitting on the fence. And the other thing that happens as a result of flying blind or not having a coherent direction. Uh, or a coherent foreign policy, is that we tend to commit U-turns every now and then on a number of issues. And I, I've, I've gone into a, a, a few examples in, in my book as well. I talk uh, uh, you know, about, about the Maldives, I talk about uh, Sri Lanka, I talk about Myanmar, all of these countries where we have actually spoken for democracy one day and then the next day we've gone and made you know done business with the military junta for various reasons. 
these are all U-turns that hurt our credibility, both in the eyes of the democracy activists, as well as in the eyes of the military junta that finds China as a, as a much more reliable partner mm-hmm. than India. And so U-turns tend to be another very costly issue uh, that, uh, that, that arises out of not having a coherent direction uh, in, in, in our foreign policy. Uh, that is the idea that, that I'm trying to convey when I say flying blind. I'm saying India has the potential to enjoy and exercise influence around the world. But as a result of not having a coherent direction and a, and a basic framework for how we want to go about things, we're actually not able to do that uh, successfully. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember as I was reading your book, you note many places in which, you know, like India sort of ends up sort of having a very ad hoc policy rather than sort of having like a clear and coherent vision um, and, and how that sort of costs India. And you, I think, as you mentioned right now, you gave a few examples of that. So in the first chapter, um, you note that India maintains a tight rope walk um, in uh, strategic and international affairs, as it strictly guards its strategic independence, this is something that you also just talked about a moment ago. Um, so, how did India end up taking such a foreign policy stance, um, and what are the advantages and disadvantages of such a strategy? Um, and sort of connected with that, how should India balance pragmatism with idealism in foreign policy? Those are very good questions. You know, I think what's very interesting is that. A lot of people look at India's, um, you know, the roots of India's non-alignment or tightrope walking. They trace it quite rightly in some sense to Jawaharlal Nehru, because Nehru was the one who first came up with a non-aligned foreign policy during the Cold War, trying to sort of walk the tightrope between America uh, and, and the Soviet Union. But what people, I think, get wrong very often is that Nehru was not sitting on the fence between America and the Soviet Union. He was basically saying, both of you are wrong. Here's a third way in which we can do it. And that mm-hmm. essentially was the, was the non-aligned movement. Nehru took several very strong vocal policy stances on a number of Cold War disputes. He was part of the mediation uh, efforts in, in Korea. He was part of the mediation efforts in the Indochina. He was part of, uh, you know, in fact, in, in, in Egypt, he actually was a very vociferous vocal advocate of the Egyptian government in the Suez Canal crisis against the interests of the West. He actually went against what a lot of the Western countries were saying and saying he was telling the West that what he's saying is wrong. This is India's policy and this is what we want to do. And as a result of the non-aligned movement and, you know, taking coherent fo- policy stances, that appealed to the interests of specific interest groups around the world, Nehru was, was in some sense able to actually build a third bloc outside of the capitalist bloc uh, and the communist bloc led by the Soviet Union. He was able to build a following of his own uh, amongst the uh, newly independent post-colonial countries. In some sense, he was actually cutting into the vote bank that was being uh, you know, uh, fought over by uh, the United States uh, and the Soviet Union. So Nehru's non-alignment in some sense was more a middle path or, or a third way. It was not sitting on the fence uh, as, as, you know, as, as some people now understand it to be. However, I think over a period of time, it became that way. I think over a period of time, India's non-alignment became more uh, a euphemism in some sense for sitting on the fence and not taking uh, a coherent, uh, consistent and clear policy stance on, on disputes and conflicts although that was not what Nehru did. 
And today what we now see is that India is trying to walk the tightrope between different warring parties in conflicts around the world, except that it's actually not walking the tightrope at all. It's simply just sitting down on, 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 you know, on, on, one side, on the fence itself or it's sitting outside the playground and just watching the warring parties do their thing and fight each other. There is no real meaningful contribution that India's non-alignment is making today uh, in, in terms of trying to find a compromise solution between warring parties in any dispute or conflict anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, what we now see today uh, is, is, is a somewhat more, you know, less proactive, um, more reactive uh, and, and lazier uh, approach to, to non-alignment than what we saw uh, in the days of Nehru. Now, you also asked me, how does India balance between pragmatism and idealism? Obviously, there is no one-size-fits-all uh, approach here. You know, it, it obviously, each conflict or each geopolitical dispute has its own nuances. You've got to adapt to that. But I think what India needs to be very clear about is a very basic set of principles. You can't stand for one thing in one part of the world and another thing in another part of the world in the long term. You can do it for a year, you can do it for two years, you can do it for three years. But, you know, eventually what's going to happen is that people are starting, unless you are really consistent in what you do, both sides of the conflict or the debate or, or, or the dispute are going to start looking at you as a, um, you know, risk of sabotage uh, at, at, at best or as, as a bystander in the street fight at worst. And so you're not really going to be able to build trust on either side. I think what's very important for India to do is to do what Nehru actually did when he was prime minister. Nehru had a set of basic principles that he did not compromise upon uh, you know, anywhere in the world, um, really. And, and that was, you know, one, for instance, was uh, the narrative of a post-colonial victim. He believed that post-colonial countries were victims of colonial, uh, you know, co colonization uh, and colonialism. And so uh, a key part of Nehru's foreign policy was to stand up for a newly independent country against any imperial power on, on any matter. Uh, another thing that he really strongly believed in was, you know, the, the concept of, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, allow, not allowing Western countries or developed countries to exploit post-colonial countries through trade. Mm -hmm. That was another part of Nehru's foreign policy that actually came out of the freedom movement that was taking place uh, in India and, and different parts of Africa and so on. So long story short, basically Nehru had a basic set of principles on which he was basing his foreign policy. And whether he intervened in Congo or, or Indochina or, or Egypt or wherever else, he was actually doing it on the basis of these consistent principles. So a lot of the countries around the world were able to predict and know exactly where India stands. And India, as a result, was you know, able to enjoy uh, the trust of several of these countries and, 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 and enjoy uh, their support. Now, I'm not saying that we should stand for the same things that Nehru did in his foreign policy. A lot of those principles today are outdated, even though India continues to stand by them uh, you know, at the UN and elsewhere. They are no longer relevant. Post-colonial exploitation is a thing of the past. Nobody's really thinking about it uh, in Kenya or Tanzania or Ethiopia today. They have other problems that they're thinking about today where India needs to become more relevant. 
So we can't hold on to the same stuff that Nehru was doing, uh, you know, seventy uh, years ago, and expect to make that, um, you know, expect that to make us more relevant today. However, on the other hand, India today has advantages that Nehru's India did not have. Nehru was taking strong stances and, you know, on on disputes where he was not able to back its, uh, himself up with um, material strength. Because India at that point in time was a poor economy, it was a poor military power. There were several disadvantages that Nehru had to deal with. There were famines and other things. India does not suffer those things today. And so in many ways, India today is in a much stronger position than Nehru was. One can argue, and I do argue in my book, I criticize Nehru for having overshot the material limitations that India had during his time. But India today is actually undershooting and, you know, playing far below its potential uh, as, as compared to what we can do um, uh, because of the uh, policy choices or lack of choices that, uh, that, that, that we've made. So it's actually a much easier game to play today for India than it was in the 1950s. Uh, a lot of the dilemmas that we talk about can be resolved much more easily today. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I definitely agree with you that in the case of Nehru, um, you know, he even, he, he, he it was not just fence-sitting, but he sort of offered this third vision. And there's many examples of that. You mentioned his mediation in, you know, the Indochina and Korea and so on. And then I also thought, of course, about um, the, the fact that he gave the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans, uh, you know, refuge um, uh, in the late 1950s. Um, and, you know, his, like his, his role in like, you know, pushing for UN peacekeeping and so on. Like he was sort of offering this third vision. But in today's day and age, if you compare like India's response to Tibet to, for example, what's happened right now with Afghanistan, like India sort of become like a non-player in Afghanistan. Um, So, I mean, yeah, that's sort of just evidence of the fact that, you know, like um, fence sitting has sort of had consequences and that India sort of no longer trusted um, by, you know, many groups um, in many different parts of the world. So you discuss some of the major watersheds in Indian foreign policy. Um, you discuss, for example, like the military defeat against China in 1962. And then you also talk about economic liberalization in the early 1990s. Um, so did how did these um, historical events influence Indian foreign policy and um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you've already sort of touched on this already, but how has India not adapted to the changes in the world despite, you know, being influenced by these, you know, historical events? Well, I think that the 1962 war with China was an extremely unfortunate part of Indian history. Uh, in many ways, I think that it, it, it was probably the most substantive, uh, significant event in Indian foreign policy history. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that, in, to my mind, even really comes close. Even to this day, I think that it tends to hold us back. I think, you know, what happened at that point in time was, in some sense, a slap in the face. You know, we were we were trying to do all of these things that I was talking about. Nehru was playing the role of a peace, uh, peacemaker and peacekeeper in several countries around the world. In fact, when the, the war with China happened in 1962, a part of the Indian army was leading the peacekeeping troops of the UN in the Congo. So in some sense, we had actually spread ourselves out too thin. And so as a result, the governments that followed Nehru, and I think Nehru himself in many ways, might have changed the course uh, of, of Indian foreign policy if he had lived longer. Uh, we saw some of that after the 1962 war. He changed his mind about China. You know, He, he was far more skeptical of China and so on. 
But I think the the Indian governments that followed Nehru were much more inward looking and uh, pessimistic mm-hmm. and cynical, really, about India's role on the world stage. Um, there was, in some sense, a withdrawal from from the world stage. Something like what you're, you know, you talk about today with with America, except that America's withdrawal was, is in a much larger scale. But India, in some sense, went uh, absent and and vanished from the international scene overnight. One day we were everywhere. We were talking in the Congo. We were talking in Egypt. We were doing this. We were doing that. We were doing that, and we were doing the other thing. And then the next day after the war, everything just vanished. Everybody packed up and went home, and India was no longer present anywhere. And and that continued for a period of time because Indira Gandhi and other prime ministers kind of made the conscious decision that we did not have the bandwidth and the resources to, you know, think about problems and disputes uh, elsewhere in the world. We had to pour more of our efforts and resources into, uh, you know, building an economy and uh, more importantly, building a military at home. Uh, and so, you know, you had the nuclear test that took place. There was tremendous amount of reform of the Indian military system after the 1962 war. Uh, several other developments that took place. Uh, the Green Revolution took place, for instance, in the late 60s. So India was trying to, in some sense, build a nation at home and, and build something that would materially support the Indian people, which was the right thing to do. That was the right choice for the time. And then when the uh, economic liberalization reforms happened in the 1990s, as you mentioned, that was another uh, you know, key point in Indian history because, as I mentioned up until that point, since the 1962 war, in some sense, India was very inward-looking. The Indira Gandhi government was very socialist. You know, There was import substitution. There was, in some sense, an isolationist tendency to India. India started shutting itself away out of the world. But then when the liberalization reforms took place in the 1990s, the Indian economy became much more globalized and we became far more dependent, I think, on on international trade uh, and and on the outside world. Some of the numbers that I've put up in in my book, for instance, on the amount and volume of trade and how much of, uh, you know, uh, how much trade made up a percentage of the GDP before the liberalization reforms and after, that is a very stark contrast. And so in some sense, I think India started to realize that it needs to reach out to the world again, if for nothing else, then at least for its own economic development and for trade and globalization uh, and immigration in the West and and, and other such things. And so then you had uh, Prime Minister Narasimha Rao come out with his Act East policy, or rather Look East policy, as it was called at that point in time, uh, trying to engage with Southeast Asia, which were the Asian tigers, which had you know, managed to reach economic growth rates that India was still trying to reach at that point in time. And so his idea was that if we are able to integrate the Indian economy with uh, the Asian tigers and collaborate with them more deeply, then that would actually help India's own economic transformation, which is, again, the right decision uh, at that point in time and, and, you know, and, and, and the right thing to do. But on the other hand, I think that what has lagged behind is the strategic political aspect of all of this. You know, India, even on trade for that matter, India is, is, is becoming more protectionist today than one would have thought India would be by now. Uh, and there has been a lot of push for India to become much more liberal in its, in its trade policies than India has, been, uh, has, has uh, agreed to do. Uh, and that has certainly had its own repercussions for, for, Indian, uh, for India's economy. But on strategy and politics, there's almost really no 
real, you know, kind of uh, uh, attention or or intent at all. There's very little amount of uh, effort that's that's been put into kind of correcting India's strategic and political absence from the world stage, which started in in 19, you know, after the war in 1962. Um, and now what we see is, in some sense, as a result of the conflict with China. India is starting to take China more seriously. But the big question in my mind is whether India will finally start to think that because India needs to fight and counter China, uh, will India start to take a more proactive role uh, in, in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, in the East, you know, in, in East Asia, in the broader Pacific, in, in the Indian Ocean, and so on. That is a big question uh, to my mind. And, and uh, you know, one hopes that that is the uh, logical, ev- you know, evolution of Indian foreign policy in the years ahead. Thank you. Um, so, something else you talk about in the book is how, um, you know, in the regional neighborhood of South Asia, sort of weighs India down in a way. So, India is the regional hegemon in South Asia. It's also the largest country and economy. Um, however, South Asia is one of the least integrated regions in the world, and you contrast it with you know, neighboring Southeast Asia, which through ASEAN has been very closely integrated. Um, you also label South Asia as a tinderbox, and India has a unique set of difficulties in navigating foreign relations within its own regional neighborhood. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about this and what you think India can do differently uh, to manage its relations more effectively with its um, neighbors? You know, what's very interesting is that we in India tend to think that our relationship with our neighbors is very bad and, you know, we have problems with them, we hate them, they hate us and all of that. But the fact is that when the ASEAN was being created in the 1960s, Southeast Asian countries hated each other much, much more than we do hate each other. Uh, There was, you know, I write in my book in the 1960s, there was a war happening between Singapore and Malaysia. There was a war happening between Malaysia and, and Indonesia. Vietnam was having a war with China. Kishore Mabubani uh, told me on, on, on my podcast at, at Freedom Gazette recently that China and Vietnam have been fighting with each other for 2,000 years. India and Pakistan have been fighting with each other for 70 years. And so in many ways, Southeast Asia was at that point in time and in, many, in some ways even today, much more politically fractious and difficult and dangerous than South Asia seems to be. But what I think Southeast Asia managed to do was to find a common interest in trade and globalization and economic growth. I think they managed to, in some sense, build a partition between politics and economics and say that even if we have territorial and maritime disputes and hate each other over South China Sea and hate each other over ethnic tensions and all of those kinds of things, they kind of made the conscious decision to say that these things cannot be barriers to trade and economic integration. Mm -hmm. And they started signing plenty of agreements one by one. And today, I think ASEAN kind of, you know, for the last several years, it has been holding almost a thousand meetings every year. And these meetings are very, very wide ranging. They are very specific. They talk about everything from motor vehicles, integration, uh, to obviously trade and, and, and all of those other things. Uh, whereas we don't find that level of cooperation in South Asia. I think what happens in South Asia is that, and India is a very big key culprit here, but it's not the only culprit, 
is that we are not able to separate our political differences from our need for trade and economic integration. India actually tends to weaponize trade. And so, you know, when there is a dispute with somebody, look at Pakistan, for instance. You're fighting with Pakistan and the first thing that gets hit is cricket. I don't see the point of really stopping cricket matches being played between India and Pakistan. It has never, never in the history of Indian national security has a cricket match been responsible for a terrorist attack. And it has also never been, you know, a ban on cricket has also never been responsible for foiling any terrorist attacks. These things are completely unrelated. So what India has not been able to do, unlike, uh, you know, the Southeast Asian countries, is build the sort of cultural and economic ties between the people and citizens of different countries underneath whatever quibbles and, and political differences and disputes that are between the governments. Governments can fight each other, but that is no reason for, you know, for people not to trade with each other and have cultural exchange and, and, and all of these other things. This, I think, is one of the things India needs to really be more cautious about. I think that especially today, at a time when China is gaining ground and building influence in, in South Asia, the one thing that India can do better than China is cultural exchange. Because China and Southeast, South Asian countries have absolutely no cultural similarities in common at all. In fact, Chinese investment is extremely unpopular in countries like, like Sri Lanka. Because there is no commonality between Chinese and, and, and Sri Lankan people. Mm -hmm. And when an investment project takes place, the Chinese contractors uh, inevitably bring in Chinese laborers. It becomes a little Chinese colony of its own. And then you've got the debt trap narrative that you know kind of builds onto that. And so as a result, there are a lot of dif difficulties but at the cultural level and the economic level between China and, and various countries in South Asia. But what India can do is leverage the cultural linkages that India has. There are Tamilians in Sri Lanka and India. Mm -hmm. There are Bengalis in Bangladesh and India. There are Punjabis in uh, Pakistan and India. There are Biharis in, in Nepal and India. We've got to try and make use of these cultural linkages and leverage mm -hmm. them to build trust, at least between people, if not governments. Over a period of time, I think that will actually start to make, you know, it will start to kind of pull politics in a certain direction. And India being the largest country in, in South Asia is going to inevitably, uh, you know, be the most um, uh, uh, benefited as, as a result of, of, of such, um, you know, trust building. So that's the first thing India has got to do, along with several other measures that, that I elaborate in my book. Thank you. Um, so um, something else that you talk about is how China and Pakistan dominate the Indian strategic imagination. Um, so why are the conflicts between India and these countries so persistent? And what can India do better um, to sort of manage its conflicts or manage its relations with both countries as it pursues its quest for global leadership? Well, you look with India and Pakistan, it's a very unfortunate case. Uh, and and in my in my book, I wrote an entire chapter on South Asia and barely mentioned Pakistan at all. And the reason that I did that was because, quite honestly, and even statistically, Pakistan is not as big a threat to India as India thinks it is. We, in any military conflict, will be able to you know, uh, easily prevail over Pakistan because of the massive disparity that there is between India and Pakistan militarily and economically. And, and on other parameters, and Pakistan knows that as well. 
So in many ways, I think the threat from Pakistan is a bigger issue of domestic politics than it is of international politics mm-hmm. or of national security. Uh, and, you know, I, I write in my book that many of the threats that come from Pakistan can actually be thwarted if India does reform of its own domestic state institution. And I've given examples of why I say that as well uh, in my book. So the obsession with Pakistan, to my mind, is is a bit of a distraction. It does not lead anywhere. I don't think that India and Pakistan are going to be able to agree on, say, Kashmir anytime soon. Uh, In fact, we've only been going further and further away from a resolution in recent years. And it might take generations for us to kind of come back to a point where we can actually even start thinking of a resolution. So that is out of the out of question as far as I'm concerned. And really, more than that, I don't think India can really do anything with Pakistan. There's nothing to be done, really, apart from really allowing cricket matches and Bollywood movies to be, you know, to, to be exchanged. I mean, there's no point in India putting an embargo on Pakistan cricket. Uh, it, it, it has nothing to do with the security establishment in Pakistan, certainly has nothing to do with the LET and other groups there. Uh, and India does not gain anything except for, you know, kind of, you know, playing into the narrative of the Pakistan army that India is an existential threat. India has nothing to gain from being an existential threat to Pakistan. Maybe, you know, uh, certain elements in Indian politics might have a vested interest in that. But beyond that, there is nothing in India's national interest that India is going to gain from being an existential threat to Pakistan. So India certainly doesn't want to do that either. So why play into that narrative at all? Why not allow cricket and Bollywood and these other cultural exchanges to to take place? That would be the only thing I would say about Pakistan. As far as China is concerned, I think that there is certainly a very fundamental long-term clash of interests uh, between India and China. And I've written an entire chapter about why I think this. Um, I think for one, certainly a successful or prosperous emerging influential democracy in, in, in China's neighborhood is certainly not in the Chinese Communist Party's interest. That is a direct existential threat to to the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it's more so in the Xi Jinping era because Xi Jinping has made the Chinese Communist Party even more authoritarian than it has traditionally been. In some sense, he has taken the Chinese Communist Party back to the era of Mao Zedong. And so there are more people today in China and in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and elsewhere that are opposed to the Chinese Communist Party than there were, say, 20 years ago. This is a fact of Chinese politics. And so if India is a successful democracy and an influential democracy, China will see India as a threat. I'm not saying that India today is seen as a threat, but if China is doing long-term strategic planning, which it does, I suspect that China has decided that India is to be contained and India's rise is to be contained And a lot of the border conflicts and all of these other things that you see coming up from time to time are all part of that great game from from the Chinese side. So I think the only way that India can really deal with China is to actually close the power disparity between India and China. There is a massive power disparity on military terms and economic terms between India and China. Everybody knows that. But... For India to organically close that gap is going to take I don't know how many generations. Uh, And certainly in recent years, we haven't really gone very far in terms of soft power and economic metrics. Our military has gotten better in the last couple of years. That's very clear. I I wrote about it recently, uh, quoting Lowy Institute's uh, Asia Power Index, 
where India's hard power metrics have actually improved. But pretty much everything else on economic and cultural and other metrics has actually gone down. So the power disparity is not getting better anytime soon. The only thing that I think India can really do is to play the balance of power game. We've got to build alliances. You know, we've got to try and build bargaining chips around the world, cultivate reliable uh, allies in, in, in the Asia-Pacific as well as elsewhere that would actually be able to balance against Chinese interests. China today has global interests. And so only if India is able to build bargaining chips and you know, cultivate allies at a global scale can India really balance against China and as a result deter Chinese aggression uh, both in the Himalayas and, and, and anywhere else. So that, I think, is the game that India has to play. India has to start to build allies and bargaining chips that can actually close this power disparity. If India alone cannot close that power disparity, then India plus another country plus another country plus another country put together should be able to close that power disparity with China and as a result deter Chinese aggression. So um, another thing you talk about is U.S.-India relations. So as large um, and diverse democracies, India and the U.S. um, are seemingly natural allies. Um, But various tensions and irritants have arisen over the years in relations between both countries. And until recently, relations between the United States and India had not yet reached uh, fruition, um, as you as you mentioned in your book. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? Um, how should India sort of maintain its strategic independence, but also at the same time um, sort of cultivate relations with the United States? Um, yeah, and how can India sort of leverage its relations with the United States to pursue its foreign policy goals? Look, I, I think that the term strategic independence or strategic autonomy is itself outdated as far as India is concerned. I don't think that India is a small enough country anymore that any country in the world, including the United States, can really arm twist India if India becomes a full-blown U.S. ally. I don't think that's going to happen, and more so particularly in today's multipolar world, where no country really has you know, the, the kind of unipolar clout that America enjoyed in the 90s. I don't think that that is really a threat at all. It was a threat for India in the 60s and the 70s when India was suffering famines and required food aid and all of these other things. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that today's India is really as weak as people think it is when they say that India has to work to, you know, kind of uh, safeguard its uh, strategic independence. That's going to happen anyway. And I I explain this uh, in, in, in the U.S. chapter of my book as well. I talk about how America had arm-twisted New Zealand after the Iraq war because New Zealand had refused to join George W. Bush's Iraq war. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as a result of that, indirectly, New Zealand was punished by giving Australia, you know, America gave Australia special immigration policy concessions, which uh, New Zealand citizens did not enjoy. And New Zealand diplomats today, you know, kind of think of that as as a as an indirect way of of punishment uh, to New Zealand from the American uh, government. I don't think that's really going to happen in in India's case. If New Zealand was able to stand up to America during the Iraq war and continue to be a part of the American alliance uh, system and enjoy all the various other benefits that come through the Five Eyes and other such uh, structures, there's no way that America is going to actually successfully arm twist uh, India. And I don't think America really believes that it can do that either. I mean, 
there are obviously certain hawks in Washington, D.C. that might be thinking along those lines, neocons and other such people. But I don't think that the establishment in American foreign policy anymore really thinks that it is you know, uh, possible for America to arm twist India or other countries of India's size and consequence in, in that manner. Now, the, you know, the, the problem that India kind of has is that it has a hangover of the non-alignment and, and Cold War era policy system because we are still not able to think outside of that. I think India, in some sense, is still very suspicious of, uh, of, of alliances. Again, by the way, although Nehru is the one that is credited with non-alignment, Nehru was not in, many, in, in any way really suspicious of alliances. The NAM was actually an alliance system. The punch shield was an alliance system. Nehru was building alliances everywhere all over the place. But the, the thing that, that, that people think about when they think about non-alignment today is a kind of an allergy to having alliances because they think that it's going to, in some sense, hurt India's strategic independence. It will not. So India needs to start actually taking that extra step, I think, towards America trying to sort of, um, you know, find areas of common interest around the world. For instance, as I write in my book, there are many areas of common interest between India and the United States uh, in places like Africa and Latin America. But India is simply inactive. We have not really thought about those interests or what we can do in those parts of the world. If we start becoming more proactive, we will find that there are actually a lot of areas of common interest between India and the United States. Uh, and India has, uh, has, has also not built for itself a basic coherent set of principles for its foreign policy uh, that are in keeping with a set of long-term interests and, and, and strategic goals. If we do that again, as I, as I argue and explain in my book, India will find that there are actually a lot of areas of common overlap between India and the United States. So there are many areas for cooperation and you know, common interests and commonality that to this day are unexplored in, in, in this particular relationship. Uh, and I think India needs to start taking that extra step forward. I think America is a very willing ally. Uh, the, the blame, if any, for uh, an imbalance or, or, you know, the blame, if any, for a lack of movement in, in the India-US relationship, I think a, a, at least about 80% of the blame should actually lie on, on India's side of it. So um, something that you've talked about um, is, you know, I, I think you, you mentioned this maybe in the in your epilogue is that, you know, the wor world is sort of moving away. And I think you mentioned this earlier, too, as we were talking, that the world is sort of moving away from being a unipolar world to being a multipolar world in the United States is sort of somewhat withdrawing from the world. It's sort of no longer maybe the sole superpower as it used to be for the last maybe 30 years. Um, so what challenges and opportunities do these changes present for India and its foreign policy in the coming years? Well, the number one strategic challenge certainly is the rise of China. I don't <laughs> think that we can really escape from that at all. Uh, if India does not fundamentally change as a country, that is, if we you know, do not cease to be a liberal secular constitutional democracy, I think there will be a long-term clash of interest between India and China. If India changes and is no longer a liberal secular democracy, that's a, that's a different um, uh, issue and situation altogether. I have not written about that in my book, but I think that in that kind of a scenario, a lot of these equations will change. But as things stand and, and the way that India is and the interest that India has and, you know, the long-term aspirations that India has on the global stage, I think China's rise is definitely a massive strategic challenge. 
Uh, and the only way to really deal with that is, I, as I mentioned earlier, is, you know, kind of to play the balance of power game, uh, try and, and, and plug that gap in power disparity between India and China by, by building bargaining chips and alliances around the world. Uh, the opportunities are plentiful. I mean, I think what we are looking at today in many ways is, I, I, I quote Ian Bremer in my book, for instance, he calls it a G0 world. Um, and, and what he means by saying that is that there is a state of anarchy on the world stage today. Unlike in the 90s and, and 2000s, you know, the, the, the world order in some senses is no longer being guarded or safeguarded by the West or by the United States. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's, it's kind of more of uh, an anarchic, uh, uh, you know, laws of the jungle kind of a, a situation that we're in today. Now, the opportunity, the, the, the part of this is a challenge. <laughs> the challenge, again, is that China might actually rise and China and Russia might, you know, use this to their advantage and define the world order in ways that I believe would not be in India's interest. But part of it is also an opportunity. It means that there is a power vacuum on the world stage that countries like India or China um, or, or Germany and the EU and, and, and other countries like that can actually stand up and, and step up and fill. Now, for India to actually make use of this opportunity, it's very important that we stop flying blind. We've got to start, you know, kind of building a basic coherent set of principles on which our foreign policy can actually be um, you know, found it. Whether should we stand up for human rights and democracy around the world? Should we not? Should we stand up for sovereign governments around the world? Or should we stand up for rebels that are fighting for human rights? These are basic principles and questions that Nehru had answered for himself. But, in, but no prime minister since Nehru has really answered it. And so therefore, we are not able to build a coherent foreign policy because we do not have a coherent set of principles. Now, if India is able to answer these sorts of basic, you know, kind of philosophical questions, if you will, or normative questions, as, as they call them in, in, in American IR academia, um, you will find that India is able to kind of come to the conclusion that a certain world order is in its, is in its interest and a certain world, world order is not. And when you've decided that that's what you want to represent on the world stage, then you can start filling in that power vacuum that you find uh, on the world stage right now. I don't think that the anarchy is in India's, um, uh, you know, uh, a favor either. I mean, it's it's an opportunity for India to fill the power vacuum, but I don't think that allowing this anarchy to to go on and you know uh, build a, a world of disorder and chaos and lack of cooperation. I don't think that that kind of a world is in India's interest uh, at all, and it's certainly not in the interests of the West. It's also not in the interests of China. I think we are in a, in a state of instability right now where we are transitioning really from the American unipolar order to something that we don't know yet. But somebody or the other is going to fill that power vacuum. And if you don't fill it, somebody else will. And you don't really know whether the world order that they build is really going to be in your interests or not. Uh, and so in that sense, I think that um, you know, you're kind of looking at a, at a situation uh, in global governance, uh, where different countries are trying to beat each other to the to the punch, uh, and and the country that's able to navigate this successfully is is going to be able to meet its interests. Thank you. So something else that sort of you know uh, caught my eye, and something that you mention in this book is this major paradox of Indian foreign policy that India desires 
a greater role in role in world affairs, but it has a tiny workforce of diplomats in the Indian Foreign Service. So something you notice how India, a country of over 1.3 billion people, has as many diplomats as Singapore, uh, which hardly has 5 million people. It's sort of less people than many like major Indian cities like Mumbai or Delhi. So why is this the case? And how can this and other such lacunae in India's role in the world be corrected? You see, I mean, this is a problem of political will. If there is a political will in New Delhi and more particularly in the Prime Minister's office to hire more foreign foreign service diplomats, there are several plentiful ways in which to do that. I've written about it extensively, plenty of options that are available. I've written about some of it in my book, but if people read my articles from a few years ago for, um, you know, one article that I wrote for the print and, and another for the Deccan Herald, they'll find that there are a lot of solutions possible. In that one article alone, I wrote about five or six different solutions uh, that India can uh, can practically implement uh, in order to hire more foreign service diplomats more quickly. But there is a problem of political will. I don't think that this is something that politicians really care about very much because voters don't care about it very much. And that's one of the things that I'm I'm hoping to kind of achieve with my book. I'm trying to show to the Indian voters and the Indian people, whether they are at home or abroad, why a more proactive foreign policy is important to them Mm -hmm. and to their own personal well-being, and also how a small diplomatic foreign services is actually impeding uh, a proactive foreign policy from being implemented. So if, if, if the voters are able to make this an electoral issue, I think you will find that there is political will. I think you will find that many of these things will uh, automatically change. But the other thing that one of the, you know, serving Indian diplomats, I'm not going to name them, actually told me some time back was that actually even the Foreign Service has a vested interest in keeping itself small because it's exclusive. You know, it kind of feels uh, more prestigious because it's more exclusive. It feels more prestigious because fewer people work for it. But also at the same time, more diplomats in the Foreign Service today have a higher chance of becoming ambassador before they retire than if there are many, many more people in the foreign service. Uh, And if there is lateral entry, then obviously competition within the foreign service is going to increase. And so fewer people who are selected to the foreign service as as young UPSC recruits are going to be able to retire as as ambassadors. So there are several such, I think, vested um, uh, interests to fight against even within the diplomatic service. But if if, if the prime minister wants to do it, he can do it. I mean especially this government has been able to do a lot of things that were politically very difficult. I honestly never thought that Article 370 will be successfully revoked in my lifetime uh, because of how difficult that is politically, but they were able to do it. And they actually went even further than that. And they redrew the map of Jammu and Kashmir as a state. They downgraded it into a union territory. So that shows the amount of political capital that exists with this government if it wants to do something, it can certainly do it. Uh, and, and it and it has the ability to be able to do that. But what lacks in terms of the, the foreign service is, is political will. Thank you. That's really interesting to hear about the vested interests within the foreign service, um, within the Indian foreign, uh, the IFS diplomats, but also, you know, sort of the lack of political will. Um, so um, as a country, India emerged from the universalistic and um, 
pluralistic principles of its independence movement. Um, India's nonviolent anti-colonial movement for independence inspired anti-imperial and anti-racist movements across the world and historical figures like Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela. Um, However, in recent years, just as India has attempted to play a greater role in world affairs, Indian pluralism, secularism, and democracy itself have been eroded uh, by the rise of um, Hindutva chauvinism. So you mentioned some of the events that showcase this change in India, um, the, you know, the CANRC, for example. But, you know, I mean, there's also a lot of other events. There's the reversal of uh, India's commitment to autonomy in Kashmir, Article 370, which you just mentioned, um, which was done without following, you know, proper procedure, um, curfews, lockdowns and house arrests in the Kashmir Valley, increased attacks and uh, persecutions against Muslim and Christian minorities and other such recent happenings. So could you share with us any final thoughts about, you know, these issues and India's foreign policy in that context? And how can Indians return the country to its founding principles of democracy and pluralism? Look, I write in my book that if India is not a liberal, secular, successful, multicultural democracy, then it simply has no standing to be a global power. A non-democratic India cannot become a global superpower. It's simply not possible either on material terms or on soft power terms. It's not going to happen. You can have a really strong military, but it will only make you much more, you know, people will only suspect you a lot more. And the unfortunate or fortunate thing with India is that it's actually not a very large military power in terms of its global presence. Uh, And so the military cannot lead um, you know, India's quest for global leadership or, or influence, it can only really kind of play a role in keeping threats out of the homeland, which is which is good enough and, you know, which is fair enough as, as far as I'm concerned. But if India wants to become a global leader, the one thing that India has enjoyed for the last 70 years, which it, it has to, you know, kind of safeguard and also leverage, are its credentials and, and credibility as, as a rising, you know, a successful democracy. A lot of countries around the world today, and there is, you know, empirical proof, very hardcore research and data that I actually quote and cite in my book as well, to show that a lot of countries around the world today actually are moving towards democracy themselves. People in a lot of these countries are trying to, you know, establish a, a democracy for themselves whether that is in Lebanon or in Turkey or in Taiwan or in Hong Kong, you just look at the proliferation of popular pro-democracy movements around the world. Look at what's happening in Myanmar today. Look at you know the, the protests that people are actually literally protesting the military junta today by refusing to pay their uh, uh, electricity bills. And in some, some cities like uh, Yangon and, and Mandalay, close to about 80 to 90% of the people have not paid their electricity bills in, in, in the last uh, a few weeks. And that is that is a non-cooperation boycott movement that the people are, are launching in order to kind of persuade the military junta in Myanmar uh, to, to establish democracy. So the I think that the vast majority of people in most developing countries around the world today are actually looking up for a successful democratic model that they can emulate and also take support from. And that is the big, I think, the biggest weapon or asset that, that India has uh, in, in its arsenal, uh, in, in its quest for global leadership. If we lose that, then there is absolutely nothing really that India can offer to the world. And, and, and the world also knows that. 
uh, which is why I think you're now starting to see in the international media. I'm not just talking about the New York Times and, and you know, Washington Post and all of that. You will find even in other kind of regional uh, country-specific newspapers, whether it's South Africa or Ethiopia, you know, in, or Nigeria or, or other countries like that, you will find that, that, that these national newspapers in such countries are also writing about what's going on in India and, and writing about the, uh, particularly during the, the, the second wave of COVID that we had last year, there was a lot of commentary on, on what's going on in India because the world is lamenting that India is losing these basic principles uh, which which they looked up to for, for, for several years and, and continue to look up to. So I think that's the one thing that we've got to really try and safeguard. And, you know, again, the only way to do that in a democracy is for the people to rise up. I write in my book that a democracy is very, very difficult to establish, but it's also very, very difficult to break down and, and convert into an outright authoritarian regime. It's very rare. I don't think I can think of a parallel in, in modern history where, you know, a, a liberal constitutional democracy like India uh, has been successfully turned into an you know, authoritarian theocratic state uh, by a popular government. That has really never happened. People talk about Turkey, but Turkey was never really a liberal constitutional democracy of the kind that India was. It suffered several military coups throughout its, its, its existence. You know, state institutions were not quite as strong in Turkey ever. India is a very different case. And so if, if India becomes the first such country, that would be a big shame. But what history tells us as, as, as a result is that it's very, very difficult for any government to turn a country uh, that's a liberal constitutional democracy into an authoritarian theocratic state. That is a note of hope that I think we need to take. And, and the reason for that really is that people stand up, democratic institutions stand up, the Supreme Court stands up, uh, you know, the Press Council of India stands up, the, 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 the newspapers stand up, um, the, um, uh, you know, the, such institutions start to stand up, the Election Commission stands up, everybody stands up. And that is how, you know, such efforts are, are thwarted in, in liberal constitutional democracies. So India needs to start to take a hard look at itself. I think the Indian people need to start to be very honest uh, about where we are headed uh, and, and what we stand to lose. Uh, and, and we've got to make all efforts possible, uh, you know, right down from the, the, the man on the street all the way up to the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Everybody has to be cognizant of the importance of Indian democracy and, and fight to preserve uh, what, what it stands for and, and its promise. Thank you so much, um, Zishan, for taking so much time from a busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, so before we end, could you tell us what you are working on right now? Well, I'm trying to do a number of things. Obviously, you know, the, the, the one thing that I do very regularly is to write in the, in the global press. Um, and so you would find my articles in various newspapers around the world uh, almost on a weekly basis. Um, I am trying to, you know, kind of uh, figure out what to do about uh, uh, the next book that I that I hope to write. I'm thinking about kind of also branching out and 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 writing a little bit about cricket and other such light topics, <laughs> so that I'm able to kind of take a break in in some sense from the very intense uh, work that, that that is done as as an international affairs commentator. Uh, but uh, yeah, but but let's let's see where that goes. <laughs> 
Thank you. I mean, I, I think that's that sounds like a lot of fun to write about, you know, something more something more light like cricket. And I'm sure like there's an audience out there who would be really interested in, um, you know, reading that. Yeah, probably more people would be interested in that than anything else I write about. <laughs> oh, that's that's possible. Um, yeah, and I look forward to continue reading um, your columns and I hope more of our audience also follow your work um, and read your columns. Um, so this was an interview with Mohammad Zishan about his book, Flying Blind, India's Quest for Global Leadership. Um, so I hope you have a good day. Thank you, Zishan. Thank you.